If I told you that I used to write for a lifestyle magazine and that I was a movie reviewer, that might be impressive. You might say, wow, I did not realize that about him. And walk away thinking, you know, what a great gifted person. But I haven't given you the whole story. So let me tell you how this all developed. I was living next door to a friend who happened to be the editor of a magazine and I was working as a disc jockey at a little radio station in our hometown. And it dawned on him once that he needed somebody to write a movie column every month. And he knew I was in financial trouble <laughs> because we had two little kids and we were living in this house and I was a youth pastor and I was a, a disc jockey just scratching together a living. And so he said, well, you've got a journalism background. Let's see what you can do. And so they gave me a few dollars to go to movies. And then at the end of the month, I was supposed to write my first column. And so I wrote this column. And when I got the column back from him, the editor, there was so much red edit ink on this thing. It, it looked like an episode of CSI, like blood everywhere. I was, I, I was so devastated. I was like, I, I can't be this bad a writer. I fancied myself a communicator. I mean, I have a journalism degree. And I looked at this thing, and it was brutal. And so I sucked it up because I needed the money, and I, and I pushed aside my pride that said, uh, I should be able to write this thing the way I want to write it. And so he rearranged everything, and then they published it in this magazine. And the week after the magazine came out, people came up to me and said, You are an amazing writer. <laughs> and of course, I told them, thank you, that comes naturally. Uh, no, I, I, I didn't ever have the time to actually tell folks, listen, uh, I really stink at it, and I have this incredible editor because it just took too much time, so I would politely go, thank you very much. And you realize at some point in the creative process that you play a role, but you don't play that significant a role, particularly if you are a, a person on the low end of things, as was the case for me. Uh, this story, I hope, would illustrate this final section of Paul's, what in this letter to the Corinthians is called his section of boasting. Paul's final boast is really a diatribe. It is a, it is a lengthy discourse he has given to prove that he was an actual apostle and what he was saying in essence was true apostles don't just brag they can't brag they're incapable of bragging about anything but Jesus because they are made aware by God that they are but vessels in his hand Anyone who would declare themselves a super apostle, somebody that you should follow, right away red flags ought to go off in your head because if their impressiveness makes you think, wow, they are something else, Paul would say there's a problem. Whatever is going on in the life of somebody who may lead you spiritually, and we all have people who mentor us and guide us. We, we all are supposed to be in a church that has elders. We're heading that way shortly, you've heard, uh, where you have multiple people in your church, men and women who are spiritually leading you, helping you grow. This is what we're supposed to have. But right away, what Paul would say is that you should be careful 
if somebody is quick to point out their good deeds and slow to make themselves look less than incredible. In this case, we hear Paul talking about an experience he had that would have made everyone, including Paul, really big-headed about how important they were in the world. This passage discusses a variety of really important issues uh, about God's sovereignty over evil and about God's precious care for his children and about our broken nature. The passage starts out by Paul speaking in the third person. And if you remember when it was read earlier, he spoke of a man who had gone into the third heaven. So let me very quickly let you know from that passage, this is not uh, three levels of heaven. The third heaven was spoken of with regards to we've got our sky and we've got the space and then you've got eternity where God resides. And so Paul went to heaven and this is effectively what happened to him. He got to see heaven and communicate back to us that this actually happened kind of like that heaven is for real you know narrative that seems to be going on in the world and a little kid goes to heaven and everybody gets all excited Paul actually went there and Paul when he came back said to keep him from becoming proud because of all of these visions God actually allowed some difficulty into his life God sovereignly oversaw evil to bring about something good. And this, as we'll get back to as we did last week, is actually the picture that we're supposed to see. Christ went through the exact same experience. Evil was not uh, in charge. It never is in charge. God never is rubbing his hands or scrunching up his forehead in anxiety saying, what am I going to do? He always is sovereign, king over the universe. And you can look at Old Testament books like Job and Job 1.6. Satan actually has to ask for permission from God before he can do what he does. And this was certainly what happened with Jesus. Jesus was crucified by evil people like me. And that had to happen in order for him to be exalted to the highest place. God had to orchestrate the bad works of people to bring about something glorious, our salvation. And in Paul's case, this is what he's saying, that in order to bring about a good result in Paul's life, some really awful challenges were posed to him so that he would have to depend on God and God alone. Got two things I want you to see from our passage today. All right? The first one is this. Ironically, Paul was painfully aware of his weakness. And I say that with tongue firmly planted in cheek. This is how God helped Paul remember he's weak. He allowed pain to come into his life. Let's read the scriptures here. Verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 12. On behalf of this man, he's speaking of himself in the third person so that no one would think high, more highly of him than they should. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I'd not be a fool because I'd be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it. So no one will think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Now here's the crux of this passage. 
So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Twice, Paul says, the problem here is my tendency towards conceit. Paul is painfully aware of his weakness. Paul knows that he is prone to thinking more highly of himself than he ought, and so he's careful that he would never posture himself in a way that others would think more highly of him than they should. And so God, knowing that Paul is broken and weak this way, allows a satanic attack on Paul so that Paul would have to call out on God. Paul, a strong, powerful Christian, probably one of the more advanced ones, I would think, that's ever walked the planet. And yet it would be dangerous for him to ever think, I can do the most minimal thing on my own when Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. Paul very easily could start functioning in his giftedness and off of his reputation and off of the, the, the history he's had with people and stop consciously depending on God. And because God doesn't want that to happen because it's not good for Paul, Paul is giving something God superintends that an attack would come onto his life that would force Paul's hand. It would be one thing that Paul couldn't control, something supernatural, and Paul would have to cry out for help. He, he could live apart from the grace and power of God if he chose to, but when he was in that condition, forgetting that he needed God, this thorn in the flesh would flare up again to remind him that relief came only in Christ. Paul's pride over being the most accomplished Christian would likely lead to forgetting that it was only by God's sovereign grace and kindness that he was where he was in the first place. Amidst the euphoria of being chosen by God to do what no mere mortal had done before, Paul was prone to forget that he was still the mere mortal that God chose by grace. You can look in the book of Acts. Paul was not pursuing Jesus, quite the contrary. But Jesus was pursuing him. Now, I don't know what struggle you have today, but I know that coming to terms with your difficulties, coming to terms with your struggles, as is the case with me, begins with recognizing our brokenness. Paul's dissection, his explanation of this thorn was rooted in his concrete conviction that he was so naturally broken and prone to sin that God had to build safeguards of suffering in his life to keep him tethered to reality. And here's a comforting thought for you. If you're somebody who tends, and I have to confess to you that I am somebody who contends, uh, that tends to beat up on oneself. You think I'm just a failure. I'm morally, I just keep letting God down. I, I keep, you know, I'm, I'm so weak. I, I'm not usable because I've got these struggles in my life. Understand something. Paul was the best that the New Testament had to offer in terms of service to God. And if he was so prone to evil that God had to allow struggles in his life, friend, you're at home. That's, that's the Christian life. This is, God knows this about us. He graciously allows difficulties to keep us grounded in reality. And he's not mad that you're that way. He's saying, listen, I'm going to help out here. I'm going to make life challenging. 
so that you will continuously call out on me because you need me whether you believe it or not. See, coming to terms with our difficulties starts with a recognition that we are broken. We are weak. In spite of what Tony Robbins would tell you on an infomercial, deep down inside, morally, physically, we are frail. We are mortal beings. We do not have the power of God in ourselves. In fact, James, Jesus' brother, would say this in James 4, verses 6 through 8. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That reality is a simple one. We need God all the time. This call to humility, the call to call oneself weak, Paul's desire that you would see him as exactly who he is, broken and fallen and in need of a Savior, This resistance that people have to making themselves look weaker than they really are is the only thing keeping people out of the kingdom of God. All one needs to have a relationship with God. If you're here today and you say, I don't know what you're talking about, relationship with God, I know that I'm not a very moral person, or you may feel like you're on the outside looking in. Let me encourage you that there is only one thing you need. There is only one prerequisite to being able to enter into relationship with Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. And that is admitting you have a need for Him. You have a need for Him to forgive you. You have a need for Him to be in your life to cause you to know and relate to the God of creation who created you for His enjoyment. Humility is the key. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself so you can be exalted. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, I had to have pain put into my life so that I could remember the truth. And the truth is, is that I'm nothing without God. All one needs to strengthen one's soul spiritually is the same humility. And like Paul, many of us that would call ourselves Christians will from time to time stop seeking him. You know what? He's seeking you. What you discover as you grow closer to the Father is that He's seeking you all the time. He's pursuing you constantly. And in those times where you find yourself seeking Him, you're doing so only in response to Him. He loved you first. This is what the gospel is about. It's not about you and I deciding, hey, let's drop some rules and try to be good so that God will like us a lot more. This is about God stepping out of eternity into time and incarnating himself as the son of God, Jesus, coming to earth to show his grace and love and truth. He was pursuing you and me. He became a man to save us. William P. Farley wrote a great book called Hidden in the Gospel, and he says this about Jesus' incarnation into the world, his God coming to earth to be a man. Quote, to the degree that we see ourselves for who we really are, the incarnation will become utterly astounding. It is because we think so highly of ourselves that the incarnation has so little impact upon us. See, 
Paul was painfully aware of his weakness and, and God graciously allowed him to know this. And this is God's gift to all of us. It's the freedom of the gospel. We don't have to pretend we have our things together. We can be who we are and a Christian community should be the one place on earth where you can lay it all out there for everybody to see and not worry that you'll be judged. Often this isn't the case, unfortunately. So we felt the compulsion to start a church where it would be the case once again. In 2009, I took a break from ministry and in addition to preparing to start Prism Church, I took a year uh, to practice and uh, to try my hand at stand-up comedy. Uh, I failed miserably. Um, but I, I, I took a class and then I started performing at little stages around Los Angeles and, and got over a serious fear. And this was one of those things that was on my bucket list. I just had to try this, you know. And Because even if you can just say, I did it and I stunk at it, but at least I tried it, I felt like that was a win. Well, you might think to yourself, okay, you came here from the southeast. You are a preacher of the Presbyterian Calvinist sort. Uh, you're older. I was in my mid to late 40s at the time. And now I'm going to go into a comedy community in L.A., and I don't know how much you know about the stand-up comedy community in Los Angeles, but it's not populated with evangelical southern preachers. <laughs> in fact, a lot of the acts, their, their act is like, okay, let me tell you why I hate God and Christians. You know, and it's like a, it, it could be an uncomfortable thing if you were insecure about being a Christian. But there's mostly young people, women and men who are trying to make it in show business. And, and I was sort of kind of like this, what are you doing here? And you might wonder, how, how did I actually fit in? Because after a while, I, I fit in just fine. They accepted me very warmly. And you know why? It's because I was weird. <laughs> That's how you fit in in the L.A. comedies. You, you go, okay, let me get this straight. You're one of those Bible guys from the South? And you do stand-up comedy in L.A.? Welcome. You're a weird guy, just like the rest of us. You know, I was so off the track that they were like, ah, oh, sure, you can fit in with us, because they're all like crazy, like me. I fit in just perfectly. Well, this is the beauty of weakness, is that you and I not only can be aware of our weakness because it's truth, it's actually healthy for us. It's freeing. It's liberating for us. When I deal with people, and particularly marriages that are coming unglued, and, and my wife and I have been married for a quarter of a century, and we still have disagreements where, you know, you feel like you're right, or I feel like I'm right, or we're doing this stuff, and you realize at some point you just want to win, you know, that, it's, that ultimately you, you know your primary motivation here isn't the truth, it's just winning, and so, you know, you, you have to humble yourself, and you go, gosh, there's something really wrong with me. Well, in that context, the requirement for any kind of real reconciliation is that both people would say, I could actually be a reason for the problem here. I am a contributing factor here. The only way to reconciliation is for both people to say, don't know what to degree, I, I am responsible for the tension in our relationship. It's not even important to have up or get percentages. I just know I'm partially responsible and you're partially responsible and I'm just gonna own my stuff and I'm sorry. See, and this is the beauty of a real relationship. It's healthy in a real relationship to recognize your own brokenness. Now, if ironically Paul was painfully aware of his weakness, and as you chew on that turn of phrase throughout the day, I'm sure you'll find it as enjoyable as I did. The second point today is this. Paradoxically, 
proclaiming weakness made Paul powerful. Paradoxically, by proclaiming his weakness, it actually made Paul powerful. Listen to the text here in verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. He's talking about the thorn in his flesh. But he said to me, quote, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I I don't know what your thorn is, but you have one. You know why you have one? Because everyone has one. Paul had one. If you're like me, and Paul for that matter, you have on a number of occasions pled with God, please take this from me. Free me from this burden. For some, it is an addiction of some sort. For others, it's a besetting sin that you may never be able to conquer, it seems. For others, it may be a chemical imbalance, some type of physical problem. For those of us, and I include me in this bunch, who wrestle with a depression of a chemical or biological sort, None of these things are easy. And you say, God, change me. I wish I were different. Maybe you're overweight and you wish you were thin and fit. Maybe you're short and wish you were tall. Whatever your personal angst is rooted in, I can assure you that the goal in this is to bring about a strength in you because you discover who you are in Christ because you get your eyes off of those things that seem to be limiting you and you get your eyes on whose you are. So instead of who you think you are, you begin to focus on whose you are. You know the old adage that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I've always always hated that, but I love that Conan O'Brien once said, Friedrich Nietzsche once famously said that whatever doesn't kill us makes us stronger. What he failed to emphasize is that it almost kills you. We plead with God, and he seems not to answer because the struggle remains. But I have good news for you. He is answering. He did answer Paul, and he answers you and me. And this is what he says. My grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. See, there is relief there is an opportunity for you and I to actually encounter relief from these strains, these pressures, but it comes through a daily encounter with the Holy Spirit. It comes through an engagement with God so that we mentally, physically, spiritually are aware of our need for him as we go throughout the course of the day. He says his power is made perfect in weakness. If you want to be somebody who walks in the power of God in your life, the starting point for that is not bravado. And this is what Paul was dealing with in his context. He had these super apostles who were full of testosterone, Superman, and and we got them on TV. Just turn on your Christian TV station, you'll see them. A strutting kind of swaggery Christianity. And Paul's saying, hold on a second. You want the real power of God? What's going to mark your life is a humility and a weakness and a reality that says, I am nothing without Christ. 
Paul understood this. And wanting to walk in power, he continuously boasted of his weakness so that he says, quote, the power of Christ may rest on him. Paradoxically, weakness is the way to strength. J.I. Packer, the great theologian, his, his latest is his best. It's a book called Weakness is the Way. I commend it to you. Dr. Packer says this about this very passage. In this, Paul models the discipleship, spiritual maturity, and growth in grace that all believers are called to pursue. When the world tells us, as it does, that everyone has a right to a life that is easy, comfortable, and relatively pain-free, a life that enables us to discover, display, and deploy all the strengths that are latent within us, the world twists the truth right out of shape. That was not the quality of life to which Christ's call led him, nor was it Paul's calling, nor is it what we are called to in the 21st century. For all Christians, the likelihood is rather that as our discipleship continues, God will make us increasingly weakness conscious and pain aware so that we may learn with Paul that when we are conscious of being weak and only then may we become truly strong in the Lord. The physical struggle of daily needing Christ's power to overcome is what drew Paul closer in dependence and experience with the Father. This same experience of life's difficulties in us causing us to be drawn closer to the Father is, is seen in the gospel. And it really is ultimately, as I mentioned last week, and it's worth resetting one more time for our sake, and that is in a culture that's skeptical about Christianity, there is this impulse in some that they have to be a really good example and never be broken or say anything wrong or do anything wrong in front of people who don't know Jesus. And if that is your compulsion to hide where you're weak, you're missing an opportunity to, with your life, demonstrate the gospel, which is to say, I am broken. I have my own set of struggles. I am through relationship with Jesus trying to come to terms with those so I can love him and others better but the reason I am at peace with God is not because I've got my crud together. It's not because I'm not broken in any way. It's not because I don't have any substantial weakness, addiction, or problem. It's because Jesus has made me acceptable. This is what the world needs. Not a bunch of self-righteous Christians marching for truth. What we, what we need are Christians that genuinely know that they are free in Christ because of what Christ has done. And that frees them to be very frank about their weaknesses. Our physical struggle only serves to tether us to a reality that exists even when things are going really well, and especially. And that is that Jesus is constantly interceding for us. When you are at the top of your game, your bank account is full, your career is on track, your relationships are healthy, your kids are following Jesus with all their heart, even when things seem like they're perfect, understand something, they're only perfect because Jesus is on his face saying, God, restrain the evil one. Protect my children. This is always the case. It's just when things are going really well, I tend to, I tend to forget that. 
And like Paul, I like to go, hey, see how well-ordered my life is? Would you read my book, Three Tips for an Ordered Life? And then buy it at your local bookstore. See, this is the nature of North American Christianity, unfortunately, and it's drawing us away from the reality of the gospel. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 25 through 28 about Jesus. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of an oath which came later than the law appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. What the scriptures tell us is that he lives to intercede for his children. He's doing it right now for you. He's saying, Father, help her. Help him. Let them know the reality of who they are, whose they are. Let them know their value to you. Let them know the power of your spirit to love each other well. And thankfully, in his grace, he keeps us from things that really aren't good for us. Jesus will intercede on our behalf when we're praying for one thing and he says, that's not the best I have for them. We're gonna do something else altogether. And we need to, like Garth Brooks, thank God for unanswered prayer. Sorry, 90s reset. I write for a West Virginia sports blog called The Smoking Musket. I'm a West Virginia University grad. Uh, it, is a, it is a national sports blog. I'm one of the staff writers. I write under a pseudonym called Mountaineer Chuck. I tell you that today because sometimes I in the past have gotten a little saucy in my commentary about the Mountaineers. I take my football pretty seriously and my wife has been concerned. And so I'm asking for accountability and uh, you may read online about Mountaineer Chuck and the reason I, I mention it is because um, I, when I watch my team and in particular I have some issues with our coach I, I tend to get a bit snarky and so I'll write what is really intense like sarcasm and and it's almost like I have an outlet and I just have, have justified it historically by saying at least I'm not taking it out on my church and my family and, and so I I created this pseudonym where I can go let me tell you what I really think and just kind of let it all fly and uh, that's changing uh, because uh, not just is my wife growing concerned but uh, I actually have an editor at the smoking musket who reads my stuff and this past week wrote back and said yeah, that one's a little too snarky. You've got to probably uh, write that up a little bit more seriously. And so I just decided not to write it at all. And, and I've got to tell you, this is one of the things I'm glad for. It is a good thing to have somebody overseeing what you do and keeping you from being the worst version of yourself. Not only do I have it in my home, I apparently have it at the website that I write for too. See, God is this way. He's gracious and kind. He, he, he recognizes we're broken and fallen. And he works to intercede to protect you and I. And those difficulties, 
that thorn in the flesh, those challenges that you and I face, we can curse them and say, I hate these things and I wish it weren't this way. But he's saying, I I wish you didn't have to feel that way about those things because I'm actually allowing these things to come into your life so that you would know the joy of my presence because apart from those tethers, you're gonna drift off into your own self and that could be the potentially the worst thing for you. Paul, ironically, was painfully aware of his weakness and paradoxically, when he proclaimed his weakness, when he talked about it, when the gospel freed him to be honest, it made him strong because it made him cling to Jesus and find his strength there. We just concluded another day of prayer and fasting yesterday and we'll have one in February. I want to tell you in advance about it because Praying is really the foundation of what we do in our church. We'd love to invite you to be part of that. And one of the reasons is because we go into our times of prayer as a church, particularly when we're praying for the needs of our church, saying we may be wrong about what we're asking for. God, we want what you want for our church, our people, our community. See, we come at prayer from the perspective that God not only knows more than we do, but he loves us enough to give us exactly what is best for us. And so today I I closed by sharing to you a quote that I've really etched. And if I ever, in a moment of midlife weakness, decide to get a tattoo, this might actually be one that would be worth, you know, stenciling onto a forearm. This is something I needed and need to remember. And so I invite you to listen Tim Keller says this, God will either give us what we ask for in prayer or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. God loves you, friend. He's on your side. He wants you to trust him. So let's pray that he would strengthen us in our capacity to do just that. Father, today we are humbled that you love us enough to tether us to reality. You love us enough to not allow us uh, to become the worst version of ourselves. And unfortunately, the broken world in which we live necessitates you orchestrating even sometimes painful things so that we would not become proud or boastful or self-dependent, but instead dependent on you and you alone. May you be glorified in us and in our community that we become more aware of our weakness, this would be a place of great liberation where people who are struggling with the most intense things in life are able to share them free from worrying about whether others are going to judge them. We have been freed from judgment by what Jesus has done for us. We have put our faith in you, Jesus, and pray that you would give us boldness to proclaim our weakness so that we might know your strength. For we pray in your name.